If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And last night as I was going over this for my own sake, and I always try to, anytime I teach the Bible, I never try to teach it until I have internalized it for my own life. And as I was meditating on this text last night, I had this thought, I had a question come up, and so I'm going to ask it to you. Are we too comfortable with amazing grace? Are we too comfortable with amazing grace? Not the song, not the song, well-known and beloved hymn that teaches the deep truths of God, but are we too comfortable with God's grace itself? Have we forgotten sometimes how radical God's grace is in our lives? Have we forgotten how radical God's salvation of our souls is? Have we forgotten where we were and where God has brought us to at times? Steve just sang, if you could have seen me before, you'd understand what God has done now. Now, I have one of those people in my life. Her name name is Tara. She's my wife. She can tell you exactly how God has worked the gospel out in my life because she says often. (laughs) She does say often. Not too often, though. (laughs) That I'm not the man she married in a good way. And it's because God has been working out the gospel in my life. Perhaps you've heard of the name William Carey. Maybe you haven't. You see, William Carey was a missionary and really is known as the father of the modern mission movement. And he left Europe in the late 1700s to go to India. And before he went, he was in a pastor's meeting in London, and Carey asked the question to this group of pastors. He says, does the commission to go and make disciples still apply to us today? Is the commission to go and make disciples still binding on us, the church, today? This is the late late 1700s. And an older minister, and this is a true story, an older minister named John Ryland Sr. stated that it was not binding, saying this, Sit down, young man, to carry. Sit down, young man, you are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. And so William Carey took his advice and left London to go to India where he spent all of his life bearing the gospel to the heathen, disregarding the very poor and unbiblical advice of John Ryland Sr. And while it's true, while there is a measure of truth in John Ryland's statement that only God converts, that is true, What we will see in our text today is that throughout the Bible, God converts as we preach the gospel to the lost and dying world. You see, the salvation of people through the gospel is a task carried out by you and I, the people of God. And so John Ryland was right, God saves, but he's not going to save people without his people proclaiming the gospel to sinners. 
And so when I ask the question, are we too comfortable with amazing grace? What I'm asking is, have we forgotten how great God's salvation in our lives is to the point that we don't share the gospel anymore? You see, Jesus not only redefines our understanding and experience of suffering, we've seen that. That Jesus is looking beyond our physical illnesses to our ultimate healing of our bodies from sin. He's redefined that. He's now going to redefine our understanding of mission and evangelism and what it means to live the life of a disciple. And so let me invite you to stand as we read our text today. Mark chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Mark records, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who had followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you invite us along the seashore as you call Levi and to sit with you at a table as you dine with sinners. Help us to see the depths of grace in these words. Help us to hear Holy Spirit come and cause this word to come alive in our hearts and our minds this day. Amen. You may be seated. So you see in your notes, the main idea this morning is that Jesus is the true servant king. This is a title that Mark will develop as we go on, but he's the true servant king who befriends sinners, who befriends the most wretched of sinners, including you and me. So in this text, the scribes are offended that Jesus is eating with sinners. And what he is driving us to see is that Jesus not only befriends these sinners, Jesus befriends sinners through the gospel, and that is you and I. And so what we will see through this story is the clashing of two religious viewpoints. The viewpoint of cleanliness and ceremonial obedience. The Jews said, if you don't behave like we do, if you don't follow the rules like we do, if you're not from the right people like we are, you can't be right with God. And the other viewpoint is that of rescuing the lost. Religious obedience and cleanliness versus rescuing the lost. Today we might call those who fit the church mold and those who don't fit. Those who look like good, well-behaved Christians and those who would look odd and out of place in a church service. We're looking at two conflicting religious viewpoints. And the first one comes in verses 13 through 14, which is Jesus calls Levi the tax collector. You see in your Bibles there that he is out again beside the sea. 
We should note as we read this text, we're hearing echoes of the first calling of the disciples in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. In both of these scenes where Jesus is going to his disciples and calling them, they are beside the Sea of Galilee. Both of them are, he's calling men who are at work actively. His first disciples were fishermen and they were actively at work and he calls them from that work. And here Levi is sitting at his tax booth and Jesus calls him from his work. We see an authoritative call go forth. Jesus says, follow me. And each of these men hear it and respond, which is the fourth thing. We see an immediate response on the, on the part of the disciples. Not a one of them paused to ask, is this the right thing? They simply obey. But why is the calling of the tax collector, or in some of your Bibles it may call him the publican, why is the calling of this tax collector so controversial? We see tax collectors in this time in history were known as dishonest people. They were known to extort money from people. They were known for not posting the rules and then requiring obedience to the rules. I know that's not posted, but you, you have to pay this amount of money. They were also known for making false accusations against people in order to extort more money. You see, tax collectors in Israel were most often Jews. They were ethnic Jews, but they were loyal to Rome for the sake of wealth because in this time in history, Israel was ruled by Rome. And Rome had established some governors. Sometimes they're called puppet governors, which is Herod Antipas is one of those puppet governors. And they would install these people along trade routes to collect taxes. And so tax collectors were loyal to Rome, not because they loved Rome, but because they loved money. And so it was money at any and all costs for these people. And so when we think about Jesus calling Levi the tax collector, what we are confronted with in the text is that Levi is not the ideal candidate for a disciple of Jesus. If somebody said with a clean slate, who are you going to pick to be Jesus' disciples? Well, we might say, well, who's the, who's the best well-behaved? Who knows their Bible the best? Who prays the most? Who gives the most? Who does this, that, or the other religious activity the most? Who has the most Awana badges from when they were in Awana? We might start setting up some criteria for those to be able to follow Jesus. And that's what we are confronted with here. Jesus goes not only to an unqualified candidate, but one whom we would say is highly unlikely, is offensive, You see, it's not just that Levi wasn't a normal candidate. It's that he offended the other Jews when Jesus called him. He offended the other Jews. And so Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee. He's passing by a trade route, meaning kind of like a highway. And at these points, a tax collector would have built a platform to make sure people would see probably a sign, something that said, you know, pay your taxes. And Levi is sitting up on this platform and he would then require the taxes to be paid as people passed by on their trade routes. And so Jesus is passing by and he says, follow me. Now, just for the sake of clarity, I take Levi in the gospel of Mark to be Matthew. Matthew who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Matthew. 
Because this is the only time in Mark's gospel where we find the name of Levi. And in Matthew, in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we find this same story, but Matthew has adopted his other name, which is Matthew. And if we read the list of the disciples at the end of Mark's gospel, we don't find Levi's name. We find Matthew. And so here's the point. Sometimes we forget, and I'll come back to this. Sometimes we forget Levi and we only remember Matthew. Sometimes we forget where he started, who he was before Jesus worked out the gospel in his life. Sometimes we only remember Matthew as this great disciple who wrote one of our gospels. The great disciple who led the charge to the gospel after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. And we forget that he was once a hated tax collector. Or think about Paul. Paul is often remembered as the missionary apostle. Took the gospel to the known world. Wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. Was regarded as the first biblical scholar. And yet we forget sometimes that Paul started as Saul. When we meet Saul, he was murdering Christians. He was persecuting the church. He was hated by the church. And we forget sometimes that God called an unlikely offensive person to faith and then uses them to establish the church in incredible ways. Sometimes we forget those things. Or let me ask you this question. If you only knew Saul, imagine, imagine you're, uh, you're in the first century and you know Saul. Because you've heard of his persecutions of the church. You've heard of how he hates the church and is killing Christians. And then you hear that God has saved him. And so you celebrate. Praise God that God can save even a sinner like Saul. And then you hear that he's been installed as an apostle and is establishing churches. And you think, well, hang on just a minute. This guy was just killing us, and now we're going to give him authority? Now we're going to say he's in charge of these churches? Now we're going to say that he's writing the Bible? Would we be so quick to entrust authority to somebody like that? Would we be so quick to recognize the radical nature of God's amazing grace to change a sinner to a saint like that? See, sometimes we forget that Matthew was once Levi. And so an aspect that sets Levi's call apart from Peter and Andrew. Now remember, Peter and Andrew were the first disciples called. An aspect that sets Levi's calling apart is his radical break with his identity and his livelihood. You see, uh, Levi's abandonment of his tax booth was different than Peter and Andrew's leaving of their fishing boats. You see, a fisherman could always return to fishing. He could always go catch more fish and sell fish at the market. But a former tax collector who had abandoned his post in the middle of the day would have no opportunity to return. And given his social standing among the Jews, a former tax collector would have little to no prospects for work if he left his tax booth. Because remember, he's the guy who was extorting money. He was the guy who was stealing money. He was the guy who was lying. He was the guy who was more loyal to Rome than to the Jews. Why would I hire him? 
And so Levi's immediate response to Jesus, his response of obedience, highlights something particular about Jesus, namely Jesus' authority to call disciples. Levi's leaving of his post wasn't casual. It wasn't, yeah, I can come back to this later, or yeah, it's just no big deal. When Levi left his post, what he was saying was, I'm done with this way of life. I'm not coming back to it because I can't come back to it. I'm going to follow Jesus. And so let's think about this for just a moment. Let's think about this authority of Jesus' call as it's displayed in the life of Levi. Because it gives us an insight into the nature of obedience and salvation. We should ask, what would naturally possess a man to abandon his livelihood without a moment's contemplation? If somebody came to you at your job and said, leave your job and follow Jesus full time, and by the way, you can't come back. There's no safety net here. Would you say, yeah, doing it right now, not even a question? Or would you pause and think, is that worth it? Is it worth it for me to leave my job? Is it worth it for me to cut out my safety net to follow this guy? What would naturally possess a man to do that? The answer is nothing. What would cause a man to leave his profession when his other options are minimal? It would have to be something greater. Mark wants us to see that Levi's response to Jesus is not natural. Levi was overwhelmed by Jesus' authority. Levi didn't decide once Jesus called... He simply obeyed. Jesus' authority in his call compelled him to obedience, and he obeyed. And you see, Levi did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose Levi. You say, well, how do you get that from this text? Because of the status of a tax collector, the status of Jesus, and the radical call that Jesus places on his life and the cost that Levi had to pay in order to follow Jesus. Because the options were, stay as life is, make a lot of money, keep my job, and this future is secure. Or, leave all that and follow this homeless itinerant minister as he ministers to all these people just wandering all over the world. And never have any of this safety stuff anymore. You see, Jesus came to him. Jesus chose him. Jesus called him. And Jesus compelled him to follow And what we see, like the others, is that Levi got up and left his job and followed Jesus. And if we pay careful attention, we will note that this story fits perfectly within the story that Mark has already been telling us. We've seen that Jesus has authority to call his disciples, to teach, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to cleanse lepers, and to forgive the sins of mankind. And although we have seen Jesus call disciples already, we're now seeing all of these things come together as Jesus calls Levi. Let me explain. What's occurring when Jesus calls Levi to follow him? Well, Jesus' call creates repentance in Levi. Levi would have never left his post to follow Jesus if he did not see the need for repentance. And he would have never seen the need for repentance until Jesus called. Jesus' call creates faith and obedience in Levi. He at once understands this is a man that I need to follow. And he obeys. 
His call forgives Levi's sins. His call empowers Levi for the new life of faith. And we see, like the other disciples, that Levi almost immediately becomes a fisher of men. Because in the very next scene, Jesus is in Levi's house, presumably that night, and there's a crowd of tax collectors and sinners. And so Levi, during this time, has, you know, taken Jesus by the arm, perhaps, and said, hey, let me introduce you to all my tax collector and sinner friends. Or he's gone out and gotten them, said, come to my house. There's this amazing man named Jesus who's going to be there tonight. And so Levi has almost immediately become a fisher of men, which leads us to our second point, that Jesus dines or he eats with sinners. Jesus eats with sinners. When Jesus calls Levi the tax collector, he's making a statement, brothers and sisters, about the gospel. He's teaching us about the gospel. He's teaching us about who can be saved, about who can be a disciple of Jesus. He's showing us something about the kingdom of God. And the scribes take notice once again. If you recall last week in chapter 2, verse 5, they took offense when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The man is lowered through the roof and he's asking for healing and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes say, well, only God can forgive sins. And yet here again, they are offended because Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and sinners. They now take offense that Jesus is associating with people that they think ought not be associated with. And not only is he associating with them, he's sharing a meal with them. And not only is he sharing a meal, he's not sharing a meal in a restaurant. He's gone into a home of a tax collector, and he is reclining at the table. Now, in the first century, what this means is he was literally laying on the floor, propped up on an elbow, in a very casual way, sharing a meal with all of these tax collectors and sinners. And so just as a point of encouragement... Think about how you can use your meals with intention. You know, your dinner table is not just for your family. Your dinner table is a place to display the kingdom of God. Your dinner table is a place to bring someone into your home and say, let me introduce you to the kingdom of God. You ever thought about your dinner like that? Your breakfast table works the same way. It's the same table probably. The restaurant table can work that way. We should think about our lives and the normal routine things of our lives in such a way that we exercise God's kingdom in the world. We introduce people to God's kingdom through just how we live our lives. So let me paint the scene for you of what's going on. Having called Levi, he's now reclining at Levi's dinner table. We see that in verse 15. As he reclined, that's Jesus, at the table in his, Levi's, house. Jesus is at Levi's house. And he's at a dinner table with a great crowd of those who are like Levi, those whom the Pharisees deemed unclean. And the Pharisees also deemed these people unworthy to access the things of God. Now, they wouldn't, no doubt, take offense if they were here today and heard me say that. 
that they would think those people were unworthy of God himself. Now, you should be offended at that. I should be offended that somebody would think people are unworthy of even coming to God. And so, before I just make that statement, I want to ask, what would make me say that? What would make me say that the Pharisees didn't even want those people, the tax collectors and the sinners, to come to God? We see we can find it in their own writings. We can find it in their own writings. The Pharisees had become so concerned with observing the demands for holiness that they neglected the call for holiness. You see, in Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So the Pharisees took that to heart and said, I'm not going to be wicked myself, but I'm also not going to associate with the wicked, lest their wickedness get on me. But you see, in thinking that they were honoring God's word, they were actually ignoring God's word. In thinking that they were honoring God's word, they were actually ignoring God's word. Here is some actual commentary that the Jewish leaders wrote about the Bible. Here's some commentary by a rabbi on Exodus. Let not a man ever associate with a wicked person, not even for the purpose of bringing him near to the Torah. You don't know what the Torah is. That's the book of the law or the first five books of our Bible. And these rabbis said, not only do we keep our distance from wicked people, but don't even go close to them in order to get them close to God. That's what the Jews were saying about the Bible. There's another book of collected rabbinic teaching called the Mishnah. It has a lot of authority in the Jewish life. And in the Mishnah, Mishnah, we find this. Keep thee far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked. Don't let the sinners get their sin on you. And I think if we're honest, brothers and sisters, many of us treat the lost like the Pharisees treat, treated the lost. Many of us have this idea of don't even go near them. Now, our definition of them may differ slightly. You might have a different definition of the untouchables, if you will, than I do. Those people that it's just too taboo to get in their life. Those people that if I associate with them, people might talk. Those people that we would say, "Mm, I'm not having them in my home. Those people whom we judge saying, well, they just want this, that, or the other, so I'm not even going to entertain them. I think some of us have adopted the mindset of John Ryland. That if God wants to save them, he doesn't need me. You see, Jesus not only radically challenges this wrong religious mindset, but he turns it on its head with very simple logic. He takes this self-righteous religious attitude, and he says not only is that wrong, it's illogical. Look at verse 17. It says, when Jesus heard it, that is the Pharisee's question, the scribe's question, when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
He says, what kind of a doctor stays away from sick people? If you called your doctor and you said, hey, doc, I've got a cold. I've had this fever going on for a couple of days. I'd like to come in and see you. And he says, you know, I'd really rather not. I think you'll be okay. You just stay there. I'll stay here. We can kind of do this long distance. You'll be fine. I don't want to get your sickness on me. You would say, thanks, I'll find a new doctor. And yet, that's oftentimes how we treat those in need of the gospel. We are not the good Samaritan who comes to the person who's been beaten. We're the ones who cross on the other side of the road and say, I don't want to get their mess on me. Somebody else will come along. And Jesus says, that's not the way of the disciple. That's not the way of following Christ. What we are seeing in this story is a demonstration of the kingdom of God from the king himself. God does not pick and choose only the worthy to enter his kingdom. His sovereign mercy and grace extend to all mankind. And there is no one beyond the help of God's mercy and God's grace. There is no one beyond the help of God's mercy and God's grace. We remember Matthew and forget Levi. We remember Abraham and forget Abram. We remember David the conquering king and forget David the murderous adulterer. We, for, we remember Moses who led them out of the promised land and forget Moses the doubter. We remember Paul the apostle and forget Saul the murderer. Sometimes we act as if God lets us pick and choose whom he will save. God, I'm willing to talk to that person, so I think you'll save that person. But that person is too odd, too gross, too offensive to me, too sinful. You clearly couldn't save that person. And so when we come to the reflection and application, we need to ask ourselves several questions. First, we see that Jesus is the friend of sinners because he came to seek and to save the lost. Never once do we see Jesus exhorting this holier-than-thou attitude. Never once do we see Jesus or hear Jesus teaching his disciples, don't go near those people, only stay to these people because these people are the ones who are, it's okay to share the gospel with them, but not those folks. Never once do we see Jesus see, do that or say that. We see Jesus calling his disciples to a lifestyle of following him, to living the way that he lived, to acting as he acted. And so I come back to my question, are we too comfortable with amazing grace? Are we too comfortable that God has saved us and I'm no longer concerned about anyone else? Are you a friend of sinners like Jesus is a friend of sinners? Are you seeking out those who are trapped in the brokenness of their sin, whose lives are wrecked and falling apart because of their sin, who engage in sinful activities because they are in fact sinners? Are you seeking those people out so that you can bear the gospel to them? Or... Are you avoiding sinners like the Pharisees for fear of being contaminated? 
Are you avoiding sinners because you just don't see eye to eye with them? Are you avoiding sinners because somewhere in our minds we've decided God will save them using somebody else? Maybe you're like the Pharisee and you're in need of God's grace for your self-righteousness. Thinking too much of ourselves, of thinking that God saved me because I'm a good person. Or that God is pleased with me because I do this, that, and the other for him. Some of us walk around as if we are benefiting Jesus by being Christians. Let me say that again. It's pretty offensive. Some of us walk around like we are somehow benefiting the kingdom of God by being a part of it. And we have forgotten that the only reason we are in the kingdom of God is because God has radically saved us through his grace. That he has forgiven our sin, that he has made us new through his Holy Spirit. Maybe you're like Levi and you are in need of God's grace for your unbelief. And you need to repent and come to him. In our Wednesday night Bible study this past week, we talked about salt and light in Matthew 5. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we talked about that it is God's grace extended to the world just by having Christians in the world. If we are living out the gospel in our daily lives, we should be in the midst of broken sinners. And I know many of you where you work, and I know for a fact that you are in the midst of broken sinners. And the fact that God has redeemed you with the gospel and put you in the presence of sinners is his grace in the life of those sinners. Because they get to see firsthand how the gospel is worked out in you unless you are hiding it under a bush. Well, they don't need the gospel. I'll just cover it up while I'm at work. It'll offend them if I talk about the gospel. I'll just keep it quiet. It might cost me something if I talk about the gospel. So I'll just keep it quiet. But see, brothers and sisters, we need to ask these questions. How am I being salt and light for the gospel in the world? How am I making much of the gospel in the lives of those who need the gospel? So let me invite you to bow your heads. I want to ask you a few more questions as we close. Perhaps this morning you need to repent of self-righteousness. Perhaps you need to repent of a self-righteous attitude towards sinners and towards worldly people. Maybe you have forgotten that... Those are the very people that Jesus came to save. Maybe you've forgotten that those people were you before Jesus saved you. And if this is where you are, I invite you now, Christ invites you now to repent of that. But perhaps you need to repent of your sin for the first time. Perhaps you've realized you've been trying to go about this self-righteous attitude in life, hoping that God's going to be pleased with you, and you're realizing, no, that's just not the case. Perhaps you've realized for the first time that Jesus is the authoritative king of the universe who forgives sin and offers life. 
And I invite you now, through the power of the word, to submit to him and seek salvation and find forgiveness. And as we sing in just a few moments, whether you need to repent, whether you need to praise, or whether you need to pray, my prayer is that you will find yourself before the living God who saves sinners and shares meals with them and redeems them. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is challenging. Thank you that it is good. Thank you that it is full of life. Lord, as we respond now, I pray we would respond in faith. We would respond to a God who forgives sinners and restores sinners and grants new life. Lord, we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. So we stand and sing. The altar is open. I'm available to pray. Let's stand and sing together.
as we depart this morning. Uh, I don't want this to be one of those things where you hear it and leave it and move on. If you do that, then you haven't heard it. Not what Ben has said, but what our Lord Jesus has said. He's sending us with the gospel. He's sending us into the world where there are lost and dying people who need us to both be the gospel and share the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. A couple things as you leave this morning. Remember tonight we have a members meeting at 6 o'clock right in here. Beginning today and going forward, we're going to start emphasizing our Lottie Moon goal. I want us to set a goal of $15,000 this year. That's a lot of money. But the Lottie Moon offering goes directly to our international mission board to support our missionaries going with the gospel around the world. Now, praise be to God, there's a history here of giving. Amen? Amen. That the Lord has caused us to give to so many good things, including the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. But one thing that has burdened me, brothers and sisters, is the Southern Baptist Convention has 45,000 odd churches. And last year, less than half gave to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I want us to be so compelled by the truth of the word that we give even sacrificially so that the gospel can get around the world. Amen? Amen. And then one last thing. Please take note that the Harvest Festival is next Sunday night, not the 31st. It's been moved to next Sunday night. So please take note of that. A lot of other details in your bulletins. We are finished this morning. I hope you have a wonderful morning. And there's one other thing. What? Yes, for the members meeting, there are agendas here. So please pick up one of those on your way out. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.